Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. My panel, well, we've got Ben Habib, the former Brexit Party MEP and CEO of First Property Group. Alan Mirage, columnist at The Article and founder of The Contrarian Prize, and Jeevan Sander, an economist at King's College London. Now, I can just summarise these three in a very shortcut. They're my Friday favourites. I have to say, I always say it, don't I, to you three? You are one of my favourite panels, obviously, if any of my other panellists are watching. I like you all, but I like these guys on a Friday, I've got to say. Um, Now, you know the drill on Jubes & Co as well, don't you? It's not just about us. No, it is not. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. And by the way, I do have to stress that email address because often I get people saying, I email you all the time and it bounces back. It's not gbnews.co.uk, it's just .uk. So gbviews at gbnews.uk is indeed the email address. And you can tweet me as well at Michelle Jupes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, uh, YouTube, we've got podcasts, apps, we're everywhere. And the radio as well. It's Friday night, so if you're thinking to yourself, shall I go down the pub? Why not? Take your little portable wireless uh, radio with you. Take me with you to the pub. What a treat. Anyway, wherever you are watching or listening tonight, you are very, very welcome. Uh, by the way, before I get uh, straight into all my stories tonight, I want to ask my panel, um, this is a very random thing, but do all of you know what David's locker is? No. It's the bottom of the sea, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, David Jones's locker. Oh, David Jones's locker. <laughs> do you all Sorry. know? Yeah, yeah. Jeevan, you didn't know, did you? No, Good. Not, until, not until Ben mentioned it, no. Good man, uh, because the reason I'm asking, by the way, is because this was part of this stupid Wagger for Christie trial yesterday that someone said that their phone had been lost in the sea. One of the uh, barristers said, you know, do we basically believe that it's in David Jones's locker? She didn't know what that meant. She said, I don't know who David Jones is. She's been absolutely ridiculed. And there's this whole debate that's opened up online that basically everyone should know. There's kind of folklore about stuff at the bottom of the sea being in David Jones's locker. Most people know that from the film uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. But I've got to make a confession. I've never even heard of this Davy Jones's locker situation, and nor have I ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, but I am someone who only just recently found out, you know the saying, damp squib? I've only just found out, ladies and gentlemen, that the saying is damp squib. For all of my life, pretty much, I've been saying damp squid. <laughs> damp squid. Uh, anyway, that's absolutely nothing to do with anything that I am talking about tonight. I just want to get it... Oh, there you go, they're just saying in my ear, someone else thought it was uh, damp squid. Because that would make sense, wouldn't it? Squids are damp. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, that was uh, damp squid, that joke. Anyway, right, let's go on to our top story, shall we? There are about half a million civil servants working for the government, and Boris Johnson thinks that's one too many. Well, he thinks it's 91,000 too many, shall we say, because now uh, there's talk about how can we be more efficient in the civil service. It's not going to be difficult, is it? Because most of it is hugely inefficient at the moment, isn't it? As you will know, if you've been trying to get a passport or a driving licence or whatever. But what do we think about this? Don't forget, of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg. He was busy, do you remember, leaving his little notes on the desks of all the civil servants, basically telling them to get themselves back into work. There's been talk about uh, offloading some of these empty offices, etc., etc. Ben, you are a businessman. And when you hear it explained, Jacob Rees-Mogg, basically saying you've got natural attrition and we're not going to backfill it, I think that sounds quite sensible. Are you in agreement with his plans? Absolutely. I mean, we all want 
small state, lower taxes, or not we all, all sensible people want smaller state, lower taxes, uh, freedom of choice to spend their money the way they wish to spend it. They don't want it being spent on, you know, oodles of civil servants. But it, this is really vintage conservative government um, publicity, if you like. You know, Boris is on his back foot at the moment. He had a shocking uh, set of election results last week. Not as bad as some had predicted, but shocking nevertheless. Losing Westminster, Barnet, Wandsworth and so on. And this is Boris Johnson coming out with something to keep his base happy. As Rhys Mogg said, this is actually going to happen through natural wastage, if, if it happens at all, by the way. And the time frame over which it would be tested is so long that none of us are going to be, we're not going to remember that he said this in, in May 2022. And the headlines say he's going to slash 91,000 people. So this is vintage Boris. It's him playing to his base, garnering support, trying to give the impression that he's going to champion this small state, low taxation, traditional conservative uh, ideology. Uh, having had these shocking elections. So I put no store by the headline. I put no more store by this headline than I do by Liz Truss coming out within 72 hours and unilaterally terminating the Northern Ireland Protocol, having sat on her hands for the last six months. It's just, it's just sort of, you know, they're playing the news cycle. They're getting So through. you're not having any of it? No. <laughs> in summary. Ali Mirage, what do you think? Well, look, I, I think that there is a place for uh, civil service numbers to be looked at. But on the one hand, uh, we're hearing that post-Brexit, we need to do all these trade deals. So presumably you need more civil servants. You can't just sack a bunch because you've got to do these trade deals yourself. On the other hand, on the back of the war in Ukraine, we're talking about increasing the defence budget if that indeed does happen, which again means civil servants. So I'm kind of, I understand where Ben's coming from on this in terms of another knee-jerk reaction to dominate the news cycle. I mean, last week it was MOT certificates that could be mm. deferred by a year. Then we hear this whole other thing going on in the civil service, which I do think there is some discussion to be had on, which is this whole issue about working from home and potentially having an inalienable right to work permanently or for a large part of time abroad. Now, if that was the case, then why don't we just offshore it all to India for half the cost? Well, I, I can't understand that at all. I, I, I do think the government's right to a certain degree that they should be trying to get civil servants back in the office, not all the time. I mean, all businesses are trying to grapple with what's the right balance for given the jobs they have. But there is a thing about training, about camaraderie, about idea sharing, all of these things, and also the collateral benefits that you get from being in the office to other businesses around you. So I think the civil service need to get real about this right that they feel that they have that's intrinsic, that they can work wherever they want, including abroad. That's wrong in my view. But I would say be careful what you wish for, because if you want to insist to your boss that you can indeed do your job from, I don't know, Timbuktu, you can't then be surprised or upset when your boss turns around and says, yeah, good idea. Uh, I can get someone to do your job from Timbuktu. It won't be you and it'll cost me a fraction of the price. Anyway, Jeevan, where do you stand on all this? Well, the first thing about civil servants, flexible working, a fun fact in the Treasury, there's not enough desks for everyone to come in every day. And that was true before COVID as well. Flexible working has been a form of the civil service for a very long time. I actually think it does a lot to help people sort out their lives in terms of childcare and kind of organise that, as well as, on the other hand, can be as efficient. We're seeing that not in the civil service, but other firms. In terms of the, uh, the civil service cuts, rather, 
look, we all know our public services are in crisis, right? That was before this pandemic even started. NHS waiting lists today are at over 6 million. Mm. And part of the reason that we had 40,000 nursing vacancies at the beginning of this pandemic. So is the idea that Boris Johnson is going to hire those 40,000 nurses and then presumably sack another uh, 90,000 on top, or rather to counteract it, sorry, it's 130,000. Sack 130,000, yeah. And then get it back. That's not quite right, is it? Court waiting times, so criminal cases, takes two years to get them completed on the other side as well. And so clearly our public services aren't in a good state, haven't been in a good state for a long time. Cutting 91,000 civil servants is only going to make that worse. The public knows how bad our state is at the moment. And actually, you need their civil servants due to their jobs. Yeah, and Ben, I think what you're saying, uh, I found your point quite interesting when you're saying this is kind of Boris essentially uh, politicking, playing the media and all the rest of it. To be fair, you know, we've just heard Jacob Rees-Mogg there explaining exactly what this is uh, very was... clearly. And then, as you say, often it's the media that extrapolate that up with these headlines because they want the clicks. And one of the things that I found interesting, lots of you might have seen that weird uh, Michael Gove clip. You know that one a couple of days ago where he was doing his like Multiple accents acts, yeah, and yeah. his calm down, yeah. calm down. And what I found fascinating about that is that that clip got kind of clipped up, 42 seconds long, whatever it was, circulated online and everyone was saying, look at Michael Gove, he does not care about the cost of living crisis. Labour was having a field day, bashing him. But that wasn't actually what that clip was doing. That was Michael Gove essentially mocking facets of the media for over-sensationalising stuff, running with kind of grains of gossip, printing something that's then not right and then having to back down and all the rest of it. And I think he actually had a very good point. But just having the story of, you know, the government are not going to backfill attrition, that's not going to get anyone to but click on anything. I, I mean, absolutely. And that was a moment of, of, of candidness from Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and he is generally quite frank. Um, but that is not where Boris Johnson is at on this. I mean, if you look at the policies that have been coming out of government over the last few weeks, they're all traditional Thatcherite ideological um, uh, policies. You know, for example, this idea that we're going to deport people to Rwanda. I mean, great, deport them to Rwanda if it works. Leave aside the whole humanitarian thing. It just isn't going to work. The notion that you're going to, to cull 91,000 even by natural attrition isn't going to happen. Um, the new, the, in the Queen's speech, he announced a whole load of Brexit reforms. Well, I know, having studied the form of Brexit we've got, that actually this country is in lunar orbit around the regulatory, uh, uh, regulatory sun that is the EU. You know, that's the deal we've got. We can't, we can't take advantage of Brexit. So, you know, he, it, it, it's all about just dominating that news cycle to get through from one problem to the next. Um, try and get Partygate behind him, try to get the losses in the local election behind him, pivot his base and make them look at something that they're going to feel comfortable with and, and clap for. And he works on the principle that we would have forgotten about it within 10, 15 days' time. But is, this isn't just Boris Johnson, though, um, Jeevan. It's like this whole Partygate, which I've always maintained, I find utterly ridiculous and an embarrassing waste of police time. But nonetheless... <laughs> Labour was desperate for us all to focus on Partygate and for that to dominate the conversation. The second it all switches from Partygate to Beergate, then Labour are coming out and saying, no, 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 we don't need to focus on that. We need to focus on the cost of living. Well, hang on a second. The only reason that we're even talking about Partygate in the first place is because you lot 
put the pressure on and made us focus on that. So it's lots of people manipulating the media. It's not just uh, Boris. I think the Labour Party would wish they could control the media in that way. I think Partygate was the fact that people saw it and they saw the Allegra Stratton video and then they responded and said, my God, this is really awful. I think Labour also has pushed forward the cost of living crisis. I think after Beergate, the reason why that has calmed down is simply because Keir Starmer turned around and said, by the way, guys, yes, I'll resign. And all of a sudden, that story is now... Yeah, yeah, but hang on just a little nanosecond. The reason that he's come out, and I'm going massively off topic, by the way, because this has absolutely nothing to do with uh, civil service cuts. So I do apologise, but I just want to get off they the They are chest. related. They are related. Yeah, but the reason <laughs> Keir Starmer come out and confidently said, oh, yeah, if I get a fixed penalty notice, I will resign, is because he knows it is the policy of that police force not to issue fixed penalty notices in the first instance of COVID retrospective rule breaks. So he knows full well that that is not their prosecuting policy. So that's the only reason he's able to say that. But that was the same thing was true of the Met, right? The Met wouldn't investigate first and then felt there was a public interest angle. I think the reason he knows it's not is because, you know, if Keir Starmer is anything, he's a bit of a stickler, right? He's definitely a stickler for the rules. I find it, uh, I think we've said it before, I find it very difficult to believe that he would have walked into anywhere that would have broken the rules. Hmm, I don't share your optimism, I've got to say. And uh, what he said also doesn't wash with me. Graham on Twitter, um, Ali, we're talking about this cost-saving thing. So this whole civil service cuts apparently are going to save 3.5 billion. Uh, Graham on Twitter says, it's all right saying to cut the civil service jobs, uh, Michelle, uh, but why not basically cap ex uh, MPs' expenses? He says, if you use that as a mechanism of saving money... That is, uh, in his idea, the way forward. Should you have a cap on MPs' expenses? Well, the, look, MPs' expenses were massively abused uh, some time ago, and we all know what happened. A bunch of them got turfed out, mm. uh, and some criminal charges poured against uh, some of them. And, and, look, the whole entire reputation of Parliament suffered on the back of that. Mm. So we don't want to be going back there again. Look, being an MP is a serious job. You do actually have to uh, service your constituents, and you do mm. need an office to do that. And you need staff to do it. If you want proper, proper, uh, your, your, your um, stuff to be dealt with in a, in a timely, decent manner, you do need people to do that. So I think this is all a bit knee-jerk. I understand people's reactions to this. But look, politicians, should they even be paid more? That's a whole separate debate. The quality of politicians we've got at the moment is not exactly high. I mean, you, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you look at the cabinet, right? And, yeah. and I, I honestly look back when I was a kid. You used to look at these people when I was growing up, like Jeffrey Howe. Um, Douglas Hurd, Michael Heseltine, uh, Margaret Thatcher, all these figures, right? Any of them could have led the party at that particular point. They were point, giants. Right? Yeah. There were all, always about four or five people, Michelle, in and around uh, the leadership that could have a pop, right? Rego irrespective of how much support they had in the party. Now you look at it, right? Apart from Sunak, who's like obviously impaled himself temporarily uh, for, for now. You look around and you think... It's a different calibre. You look at what they do in Singapore. They pay them properly. They get quality in. They attract people that would potentially go into other jobs. We're, what we've got here, you either have to be someone who's a complete narcissist to go into it, or someone, a lot of them do believe in public service, right? But they do need to be paid properly. They do need proper staff to do their jobs. And I don't think we should go for knee-jerk things like, let's just cut MPs' expenses. They shouldn't be abused, uh, but I think there's a lot more focus on that, so I, I would expect that to happen a lot less than it did. Uh, what would you say, by the way, um, if I put it to you? You know, you're saying that you uh, think we should cap MPs. What would you say, Graham, if I said to you, OK, uh, sorry, not cap MPs, cap expenses. What would you say if I said to you, OK, let's cap the expenses but increase the salary? What would you say to that one? Um, Paul says there's no greater incentive to get your backside into the office 
than the threat of redundancy. Very clever. John says, Michelle, going after civil servants, that's a dangerous precedent. He says he reckons that many of our viewers wouldn't actually realise just how much civil servants do to support this country. Uh, and therefore, this is a dangerous question to bandy around willy-nilly. But it's not me banding it around. It's the Tories. It's Boris Johnson. It's Jacob Rees-Mogg. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubri. Quick reminder as to who's keeping me company tonight. It's Ben Habib, Ali Miraj and Jeevan Sander. Lots of conversations coming in online about that last topic, about civil uh, servants and the state of the public uh, services at the moment. I was asking you, has any of you guys tried to get anything like a passport or something to do with your driving licence recently? It's a nightmare, isn't it? Uh, the MP Christopher Chirp, by the way, has been saying that maybe we should look at compensation for people whose uh, passports have taken more than 10 weeks to arrive. What do you think to that one? Uh, many of you on, on um, Twitter, for example, Robert, saying too many bosses in the civil servants make them all redundant, but keep the workers on the front line. Well, who'd manage them though, Rob? If all you had was uh, the workers and no management, tell me, how would you deal with that? Um, Chrissy, again, this, this sentiment is coming through very quickly, th uh, thick and fast. If they won't go to the office, make them lose their jobs. Mm, interesting. Uh, right, so let's move on, shall we? Uh, some might say this is a bit of a random topic, but it did catch my eye today, and I thought, why not have a little debate about it? I think it's a very important topic, actually. Uh, I talk, of course, about paedophiles, and I have to admit, I do know that this is a topic that can get the blood boiling. It certainly gets mine going. And over in Australia right now, there's quite a debate raging, got to say, because some politicians want a national register of all paedophiles and for them to be chemically castrated. It got me thinking, uh, how do you think that we deal with this situation here? Uh, do you think our laws are right? Do we need to be doing anything going further than what we currently do? Uh, which one wants the pleasure of picking up this one? <laughs> Ali, I'm going to start with you. Well, look, I don't believe, um, I don't believe in a civilised society we should be castrating people. I also don't believe in the death penalty. But Chemically I castrating. Chemically castrating, or however you want to castrate people. Um, <laughs> But I do believe that if you uh, are convicted of paedophilia, which is one of the most abhorrent crimes uh, imaginable, that the criminal justice system should come down on you like a ton of bricks and you should serve the full time that you are given, the full sentence you're given, you should serve. And uh, the problem is that often that is not the case. People are being let out uh, way before their sentence back into society. Uh, on, the, on the point about having a... Uh, offenders register. I think there should be a register. I don't think it should necessarily be public because you could have vigilantes then going and yeah, putting people's lives at risk. I don't think that. But I do think there should be a register, certainly. And I think it should be monitored very closely by the authority, civil service and the police. Sorry, not civil service. Um, civil, no, they've all been made redundant. <laughs> so they've been They're all made redundant, of course. <laughs> Social services and the police uh, should be uh, monitoring these people very, very closely to see that uh, this sort of behaviour uh, does not happen again. Put so, kids' lives at risk. So not for you, this whole chemical castration measure. Jeevan, your thoughts? I, I would agree. Like, look, it's... Uh, Paedophilia is, like, the most abhorrent and repugnant crime I think most of us can think of. There's something particularly awful about it. At the same time, though, we display our humanity in a certain way and we say we are better than that. This is what the stands we have in our society. And actually, for those who do commit those crimes, yes, we do put them in prison, but we don't lessen ourselves to do so. I'd also agree with tougher sentences and also better ways to deal with this as well. Now, I'm not sure if more police on the streets is the way you deal with this. I'm sure it helps. But more generally resourcing as well. Like, we know there's huge resourcing problems in the police. People have to report 
crimes. It's a long time to be solved at the moment. And therefore, actually, I think more enforcement is certainly the way and also, yes, tougher sentences. Uh, ben, what's, I mean, I've got very strong opinions on this and I'm trying to hold back until I've got all yours. What's your thoughts? Well, I'm not a million miles away from my co-panellists, I'm afraid. What? But, um, you know, I, as a young man, I was very much in favour of capital punishment. But I think that's an evolution that I went through, perhaps not everyone goes through it, but I, I went through that evolution and I had, a, you know, many, many debates with many, many people about it. And I've come to the conclusion in the grand old age of 56, actually, that capital punishment isn't a great idea. And I, I think chemical castration is pretty much in the same bracket. And for me, the turning point of the argument is that you can't be certain every time that you've got the right guy. And you would have to have absolute certainty before you take someone's life or before you yeah. chemically castrate them. And, and you know, that's, that's a philosophical mm. hurdle I can't get my mind over. Well, I am so surprised at all of your opinions because uh, I do actually think that the public national register is a step way too far because I just think you're asking for vigilante uh, problems with that. And I think, you know, if someone's uh, wrongly mm. convicted, I, so I don't agree with that. I think it's a step too far. Yeah. But chemical castration, I actually think is quite a sensible idea. What I would do is I would actually say, I would offer it voluntarily as well to people. I wouldn't necessarily wait until people had abused a child before I started introducing this conversation because there are a lot of people, I'll never forget, some of you might have watched it yourself actually. I will always remember watching a documentary, I don't know how many years ago, five years ago, whatever. And it was a man and he had uh, anonymous, no, I don't think he was anonymous actually. He outed himself in this documentary as being attract, sexually attracted to children. And he was disgusted at himself, his words, not mine. And he was desperate for some help to try and suppress his desires. He did not want to go on and offend children. And there were very little, if any, help, let's use that word, available to him at all. Mm -hmm. So I would actually interject and say, right, it's not a nice thought to accept, but if you do accept it, uh, that there are some people out there that they have a sexual attraction to children. It's abhorrent, it's wrong, it's sickening, quite frankly. So then what do we do about that? Michelle, How do Michelle, we prevent what, them? What, what's the evidence, though? I'm, I'm not an expert on chemical castration, forgive me, I don't know. But uh, to what extent is it proven that if that procedure happens, yeah. I don't know the technical aspects of it, does that actually solve the but issue about them thinking about kids? Well, I mean, there was um, there was a trial uh, back in 2009, for example, in this country, where the people that attended said that it did make a difference right. to their ages. Right. And just to give you some context to this, by the way, because there's quite a few countries uh, that do allow this. So I'm talking about chemical castration, by the way. So these are chemicals. You get an injection or an implant or whatever. And this will do things like uh, suppress sexual urges, uh, erectile dysfunction, all those kind of things. Sorry if you're eating your tea, by the way. But that's what these kind of things do. So just to give you some uh, context on this, this is legal in places like South Korea, um, Czech Republic, uh, Nigeria. And you all might say, OK, but that's those kind of countries. But get this, uh, in Ukraine... In July 2019, so not long ago at all, the country's parliament uh, approved to chemically castrate rapists, even, get this, if the state needs to exert force on oh the convicts. I wonder if that will be... That's the in case Ukraine in 2019. I wonder if that will be the case if they want an EU membership. I wonder if they'll have to change that, if that is indeed the case. Well, according to my sources, I've done a fair amount of research into this topic today, mm. uh, and apparently that is indeed the case. And, and 
to me, it blows my mind that anyone would not want that to happen. So there's no point doing it if you're in prison, by the way, because if you've abused a child and you're in prison, you're not going to have access to children anyway. So I would have this measure available, A, if you've got those urges, prior to conviction, you know, like prior to acting but, on them. Uh, on a voluntary basis. On a voluntary basis. Yeah, on a voluntary yeah. basis. Yeah, sure. And then, yeah. B, this is where you might lose me, yeah. B, if you've been convicted of sexually abusing a child and you're about to, let's just say you've served your sentence, you're about to be released into society, then I would make you have that procedure. And when I say procedure, by the way, it's an injection or an implant. It's not like cutting your bits off, excuse me, if you're eating your tea. And you three are looking at me blank, and I'm absolutely <laughs> surprised. I want to well, know what, what you think what at home. Yeah, a miscarriage of justice. And, you know, uh, uh, Alan Turing, who obviously was not a paedophile, um, was chemically castrated and... You know, I just think, for being gay, and I just think that was so abhorrent, it was so barbaric that someone like Alan Turing could have had that done to him. And I just feel the whole process, the whole concept of chemical castration is just really, you know, we, we've gone on from Hammurabi, haven't we, an eye for an eye. We've gone on from, I mean, these people need to be punished. They need to be rehabilitated. They may even need some form of ongoing psychiatric as well as chemical treatment. Mm. Um, but I think chemically castrating them just, it's a, well, I know. Well, I'm absolutely, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen at home, I am telling you now, I am absolutely baffled by the response of my panel. Because Maybe that's because we're all men and we're... <laughs> yeah, all <laughs> you're sitting there crossing your legs very tightly, all three of you. But I do, I think this is a sensible idea. Um, thank goodness I say that you've got some common sense at home, you guys, uh, because Kaz is saying uh, chemical castration. If certain they're guilty, absolutely. Uh, Andrea says, I'd vote for this all day long. Wendy uh, says Australia has the right idea. Gloria, what a brilliant idea. Mac says yes, uh, they should absolutely have it done uh, chemically or medically. Uh, so all I can say to that is, thank goodness I have some sane-minded individuals. What I can say to my panel is, as I say often, it's a good job for you guys that I'm not in charge of the, pan of the country, isn't it? But still, keep your um, comments coming in about that. Keep your thoughts coming in, because I actually find it a fascinating topic. Um, and obviously, one, I thought it would just be common sense. I thought when I read that, most people would just agree with me naturally and think, yes, absolutely, let's do this. So I find it quite astonishing, actually, that all three of my panel have a different view. Uh, GBviews at GBnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GBnews. Now, you know, in this society these days, we'll all know about diversity and how important it is, and quite rightly so, by the way, because uh, we should be supporting everybody uh, in this day and age. But it does get me thinking sometimes about how it must be to be kind of uh, often a working class uh, white boy or a, uh, a privileged, so-called privileged white man, etc. There's a story in the press today uh, looking at when it comes to getting into universities, who are the most disadvantaged? And apparently the answer to that is white, privately educated boys. They are going to be the most discriminated against. This is according to a Cambridge University academic, and he's warning that this could lead to a brain drain with increasing numbers of young men heading to study in the US and apparently never returning. Uh, what do we think to this, Stuart? In fact, let me ask the panel. Uh, are any of you privately educated? Yes. I was, yes. All three of you? 
Yes, Ben, was you? Yeah, yeah I was. Yeah. All oh, right. Well, I, I, I did. I did go to a state pri uh, primary school for a while, and then private secondary. Correct. So let me ask you this: If your parent, well, obviously they did. I was going to say if, uh, given that your parents have paid to privately educate you, I assume that they will have done so to, because they felt that they were giving you the best opportunities in life. So then, Didn't if have you've much done effect, did it really? Yeah, no, they <laughs> might get you. They might want you a refund on yours, Ali. Exactly. Uh, but no, it, like if you put your own children, for example, through private school, yeah. you do so, I imagine, because you want the best outcomes for that child. Now, how would you then feel if actually you then realised that now what you've done is reduce their chances of getting on? But well, Michelle, is... I think we put it. So, sorry, sorry, Jim. Uh, I think we need to put it in context. Uh, a lot of parents who send their kids to private schools do so because they feel that the state provision around them is it's not diabolical. working. Yeah. It's diabolical. They scrimp, they save, they miss family holidays, they don't buy clothes for themselves, uh, they cut back on their own pleasures to give their kids the best chance in life, right? And this whole thing about now we're talking about white kids being discriminated, now white private school kids being discriminated, it's bizarre. In my understanding, when you discriminate against someone on the basis of their skin colour, that's called racism. I mean, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. So what are we saying? That if you had Jacob Rees-Mogg and Kwasi Kwarteng, both who went to Eton, applying for Oxbridge, Kwasi would get in and Jacob would not. I mean, that's bizarre uh, from my perspective, yeah. right? And the other thing, I was talking to a social mobility charity the other day, and it really got, I really got up my goat when they said... We need to we need to get um, kids into the city, social mobility, and we need to teach these kids who are at private schools about their privilege. And I thought, sorry, what you're going to teach a kid at Eton about their privilege, and they're not going to apply to a U.S. investment bank in the city because you've told them their privilege? What nonsense! What we should be doing is raising standards in other schools. Grammar schools have been decimated. You yeah. look at Brampton Manor Academy in Newham. It's a selective school. It had 55 people in 2001 admitted to Oxbridge, more than Eton, because it's selective. And I just watched um, a film the other night, The Unspeakable Truth About Children, about Catherine Burblesing's school, Michaela Community School in Brent. She's the one who spoke out at the Tory party conference in 2010 about the failings in the education system, was vilified by the left, couldn't be employed for four years, set up her own free school where she talks about discipline, standards, holding people to account. It's a, it's a comprehensive state school, some of the best results in the country. Mm. Jeevan? Well, first of all, like, in terms of the story, this is one Cambridge academic who claims that this is going on. Actually, the Oxbridge lectures I've spoken to about this have said they have the opposite problem, which is that they want to admit more people from, you know, uh, minorities and especially also this college was talking about women but they were saying actually of course we do it on academic merit and therefore we end up in a problem because we wanted it to be more diverse but actually that's not what we're doing so one academic say something doesn't make the world that is the case and actually like look I'm not obviously a white man but as has been covered I was privately educated I think the idea that I've discriminated against because of that is like a bit bizarre like the opportunities I had the kind of education I had every kind of opportunity that was pushed forward I am privileged, of course I am. And I accept that and I know that I was, I did have better opportunities than kids who grew up around me. Mm. And I'm aware of that. And I think it's a bit silly to say people discriminate against me because I went to a private school. Ben? Well, I think it's a great shame that this professor has conflated two issues, one of which is racism and the other is socioeconomic background. And really you need to dissociate the two and look at them independently. I don't think there's any room in any organisation to discriminate on any basis, whether that's progressive discrimination or negative discrimination. And I think there is absolutely a problem with our institutions in what I would call progressive or positive discrimination. 
um, white people are absolutely prejudiced against in their own, in, I say in their own country, in this country. They are prejudiced against. I'm going to read you. I went to a, a random Cambridge College's policy on racism uh, in the college. And I'm just going to read this to you. It says, racism and all forms of discrimination and prejudice have no place in this college. We shall continue to promote diversity and inclusion in all aspects of college life. Well, those two, those two sentences are diametrically opposed to each other. Because if you, if you, if you abhor all discrimination, you can't, you can't promote diversity. The only way of promoting diversity is by discriminating. And I mean, it all sounds very fluffy and lovely. Absolutely. How can you promote? You can, you can welcome diversity. You can applaud diversity. You can't promote diversity without discriminating. Because when you're promoting diversity, you're actually falling into the trap of having quotas for, I don't know, Indian backgrounds, Pakistani backgrounds, African backgrounds, whatever. That's the promotion of diversity. And I think the debate has absolutely been hijacked. And I think there's a lot of, and this is a Cambridge college, by the way. So these are pretty brainy people who are putting these policies together and they haven't thought it through. The sad thing about this professor's uh, claim is that he's conflated, conflated it with private schools. And I was at a private school and I have gained huge advantage in life from the fact that I went to a private school. And I think there is real, uh, there is a real place to say that if you've been to a private school, when you're coming to Oxbridge or Bristol or wherever it is that you might wish to apply for, um, that actually having had a private school education, you should get four A stars. Uh, whereas if you went to Gowerton Comprehensive in Swansea, we'll take three A's because you have had one hell of a leg up and, a, 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 and assistance. So I can see, I can see a case for socioeconomic uh, discrimination. I can see no case for uh, discrimination on the basis of colour, race, background. I think that's a fair point, Ben. But the other, the other issue is that it's not just about academics, it's also about networks. When you go to mm. private schools, it's all about the networks you develop as well and the confidence that's instilled in you. And that's something that we have to help disadvantaged kids get. Now, there are plenty of schemes mm. out there now, mentoring programmes, schemes to bring people into the city of London as well, to get jobs and internships, to get their foot through the door. You can't get a job, for example, in the city or a top city law firm or bank, if you're on the pavement outside. If you get your foot in the door, you can make your own way. It's about getting through the front door. And that is all about giving access, um, uh, even simple things like- Equal how, opportunity. How to, dress, how to dress, how to come across at an interview. Right. And people think now if you tell people that, look, you know, you've, you've got to look a certain way to go. They think that's discriminatory or you, you, you're not being inclusive. It's nonsense. There are there are unwritten codes in every organization that people will adhere to. And it's about being intelligent about that. Yes, we welcome diversity, of course. But you've also got to play the game and know how to play the game. And that's where we can help. It's not just about the academics. It's also about everything else. Well, there's lots of people. Um, David, I think, to be fair, David, on this, I do think uh, what I'm about to read, I think you make a good point because you say, Michelle, you only have to look at TV adverts now to see that white males are almost being airbrushed out. Being airbrushed out. But yeah. I, I agree with that because yeah. um, I, I, what I think is 
organizations trying to be so kind of look at me, I'm so kind of right on and work and diverse yeah. that everything that I do, here's my mixed race family eating their breakfast. Yeah. Here's my, I don't know, my black family doing this. Here's my, oh, my next mixed race family. And then you do what you sit there and you say, of course, there's black people in uh, the UK. Of course, there's mixed race people in the UK, but not every single family yeah. that you come but, across are that demographic. But the majority of people in the country is last time I checked are white. They are white. Of course. Yeah, but the thing is, it, it does become a bit uh, ridiculous when you watch uh, advertisements where you're like, you tick off the gay, the gay uh, person, tick off the, you know, the trans person. I mean, it's getting ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. We, if we are truly to be colourblind... That is a highly prejudiced society that does that. Exactly. That is promoting all these minority groups at the exclusion of the majority. That is a highly prejudiced approach. It's also dangerous. To life. It's very dangerous because it's inculcating division. Of course it is. And, and resentment. Yeah. Where it doesn't... Look... We all need to move on. Society does need to move on. Of course, things uh, progress, but it's very dangerous where you have a situation where the majority feel... I mean, look, talk about white privilege. What, what privilege does a kid on a sink estate in Teesside have who wants to become a high court judge? Yeah, right. absolutely. What, what chance does that kid have, a white yeah. kid have? I think that's a fair look. Then I agree that it's also in this country, non-graduate men in particular fared particularly poorly over the past 30 or 40 years, the largest fall in employment rates, the decline in manufacturing. And this is a huge problem we absolutely have to address. But I also can't believe you guys are so um, feel so strongly about TV adverts. Like I've never really. Well, it's subliminal. It's continuous. It's continuous subliminal. It's continuous subliminal messaging. Mm. It's continually reinforcing that agenda, and we're we're, we're just blindly falling what, into what, the. What agenda? What's the what's the beef? It, I'm I'm genuinely confused. Well, it is the inculcation of division within society for the promotion of minorities at the expense of the majority. That's what's going on. And Sadi Khan, I'm going to mention Sadi, he's my sort of bête noire, he, he absolutely is guilty of it. Forgive me, forgive me for the expression. He's guilty of it in spades. You know, he absolutely, he, his whole political agenda is based on inculcating that sort of division. But I want to move on one, just, just come back to the conclusion of what that professor said, and which was absolutely right. People are going to leave this country. It, unless we get back to hardcore meritocracy, which frankly is the only way for this country to, 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 to progress based on pure merit, unless we get back to that, we will have brain drain. Yeah, and I've got to say, Jeevan, that you're saying that you're surprised that these two have picked up uh, the TV adverts. I can tell you now, there's a huge flood of uh, emails that are coming in that are saying exactly that. In fact, this conversation on the panel was triggered by uh, a viewer of your email here saying exactly that. And I, you know, this whole TV advert, I'm astonished that you've not come across that kind of sentiment because you cannot, well, you can, but very rarely, if you watch a TV advert from a major brand, it will feature almost exclusively now, I would say, as I said earlier, you know, here's a cereal brand and here is a mixed race family enjoying that cereal brand. Here is whatever and this is a black family doing this. Absolutely nothing wrong with that mm. at all. However, it's not an accurate reflection of the demographic of this country. What's happened is it's a huge over-representation. Maybe they'll you... change. I mean, I, I honestly, maybe that I've noticed things have been more diverse, certainly when I was growing up, but I didn't at all in any way think it was to the exclusion of it. And also, I don't think it's that... Um, insidious, right? Really? I don't think it's insidious. I'm going to give you a, a bit of homework then. When you've got nothing better to do this weekend, watch some TV commercials. 
oh, and God. see the makeup of them and see whether or not we have a point. Because the problem with this is, by the way, first and foremost, I think that the reason that they're doing this is so that they can tick boxes and yeah. say, look at how work and diverse I am. Because I can't think of any other reason oh, why that would there, be your... There's a much more sinister, insidious reason. And it is insidious. Th these agendas are being promoted by people who have an antipathy to this country. Um, I'm, I'm going to take Edward Coulson, for example, you know, the statue in Bristol thrown into the... because he, uh, you know, was apparently a slave trader. Edward Colston broke no laws in his time. Edward Colston was a fantastic benefactor for Bristol. Taking his statue down and throwing it into the Seven was, criminal, was a criminal activity and it should have been dumped on. But because he had uh, a past which at the time was perfectly legitimate, but now through the prism of 2022 is unacceptable and doesn't tick those boxes that you were talking about, we could chuck him in the seven or people chucked him in the seven with impunity. And in doing that and in challenging people like Churchill, challenging even Earl Grey, the prime minister who got rid of slave trade in this country, challenging all these people, their legitimacy, what they're doing is trashing the United Kingdom. They're trashing our heritage. They're trashing our culture. They're trying to eat, our, eat, eat us out from within. And, and I, for one, am not going to have any of it. But, I'm but, sick of it. But, but I also think, Ben, to, to just to add to this, I also think that the problem is now, you know, you're, you're being defined by, a lot of the time, by your skin colour. Mm. Best black actor, best... I mean, I remember a time, right, when I was growing up where I didn't even think about that. I mean, you had Denzel Washington. You had um, Eddie Murphy. I mean, they were just good actors. They were very yeah. good actors, right? Now it's like you've got to be playing the victim Olympics and trying to put yourself into a into an arms race of like trying to confer your difference rather than just your innate talent. Yeah. A very brief word if you want to come back to you, because I am repeatedly insisting uh, in my ear that I've got to go to a break, okay, which I, very, which very I do apologise to my producer because I'm blatantly ignoring because I'm fascinated by this conversation, very, but very, very briefly. Uh, Edward Coulson was controversial in his own time, as was slave trading in his own time. I actually 1792. Think, I actually think in the same time, yes. And I also say this, by the way, I think those people were also found, at the end of it all, innocent. And also we can also celebrate and understand or reevaluate our history. Churchill, for example, did say things that were, for sure, a bit racist. At the same time, also did defend this country and probably was the reason why we won World War II and defended democracy. But you surely in... don't you don't think it's right to look back on history with today's moral rules, glasses yeah. on and judge history based on today's moral lens, surely? I could turn around and say Churchill said those things. I think they were wrong. I can also celebrate his achievements as well. I can't see why I can't do both, right? Welcome back uh, to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubri. My panel tonight, Ben Habib, Ali Mirage and Jeevan Sander. Now we've got a little tweet in the break that's really, it's perplexed us, so it has. I'll read it out. Uh, Carlos says, cracking presenter and a nice bit of totty too. What's not to like? <laughs> well, Carlos, I am the presenter, which means that one of these three, Carlos, are your top totty. I'm not actually sure which one it is. Uh, so do write back in, uh, Carlos, and let me know which of these three men are your top top totty, because I've got to say, I'm fascinated as to who it's going to be. Try and get it in, Carlos, before I end the show so I can give the lucky man the news. Don't forget, right, uh, this weekend, apart from uh, watching TV adverts as your homework, Jeevan, are you going to be watching the Eurovision? No. 
Oh, Ben? No. <laughs> Ali? Definitely not. If it was house music, yeah, but not, come on, Eurovision. I don't know how you dare, because you crack me up with your TV viewing. Every time you're on here, you say, I was watching this. Last week, it was Marilyn it Monroe. It was, but you, come on, Eurovision. Eurovision, <laughs> Marilyn I don't Monroe. Offend, I don't want to offend half the populace who love this thing. But come on, it, it, and it, the, the voting's more complicated and tactical than qualified majority voting in the European Parliament, isn't it? Uh, are you at home going to be watching uh, the Eurovision Song Contest? I don't think I've ever watched it in all my life. I think it's absolute nonsense. Anyway, uh, William Hill, according to William Hill, Ukraine has a 42% chance of winning. Really? Just... 42%? I'd be fascinated, actually, uh, if they don't. But get in touch and tell me, are you watching uh, Eurovision this weekend? Lots of uh, comments online, uh, email, social media, about the conversations uh, that we've just been having. There's lots of appreciation, I could tell you, uh, for the conversation we were just having about the makeup of uh, TV commercials. Lots of you saying, actually, that the situation in TV commercials is actually leading to more resentment and more division in this country. What do you think to that? Because if so, I mean, I've got to say, that's a complete kind of uh, 360 to what I suspect these advertising agencies are trying uh, to achieve. And by the way, speaking of ads and stuff, did you see the one the other day, the Calvin Klein one for a pregnant man? Did you see that one? Mm. He's there in his Calvin Klein's with his stomach. Absurd. Honestly, uh, I don't know what this world is coming to. I really don't. Um, anyway, lots of you, you sensible individuals, you, agreeing with me, good, on the whole kind of conversation about paedophilia. Um, that's making me happy because it means that I'm sending myself into the weekend knowing that I've got some sensible viewers out there and boy, do I appreciate that in a world going mad. Anyway, Ben, Jeevan and Ali, as I said, you're my Friday favourites. I appreciate it very much. Don't you forget your homework. I'll, I'll grill you on that when we come back. And you guys at home, have yourself a fantastic weekend. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. Thank you.